let us go ahead and jump into the sermon for this morning. So today we are going to be in Luke chapter 18 and starting in verse 1. This spring, going into summer, we are uh, doing a, a short series on some of Jesus' parables. Uh, Jesus spoke and, well, spoke and taught in parables very often throughout his ministry. Uh, we see uh, his ministry being full of parables. Um, you know, these stories that teach in Matthew and uh, Mark and Luke, not so much in John, but in Matthew, Mark, Luke, they record a lot of parables for us. And so uh, it's a great opportunity for us to uh, go back to every now and then and look at some of the different parables of Jesus and uh, all that we have to learn from them because each one of them is always just packed with, with lessons for us to apply to our life. And so we're continuing in that today, looking at Luke 18, verse, uh, starting in verse 1. So I'll give you guys just a moment to turn there if you would like. You can also follow along on the screens uh, up here on stage. It looks like we're all ready. So I'll go ahead, I'll, I'll read this passage, and then we'll uh, see what we have to learn from it today. So in Luke chapter 18 and in verse 1, it says, Now he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. There was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people. And a widow in that town kept coming to him, saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice, so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. Then the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? One of the most difficult disciplines in the Christian life for, for most of us, I know one of the most difficult ones for me, and I know from talking to you guys, one of the most difficult ones for you to maintain consistently is the spiritual discipline of prayer right? Very often we find it difficult to maintain that discipline because it, we're, we tend to be busy, distracted people. It's one of the most difficult disciplines to keep up in our Christian life. And so we have here this parable where uh, it is, it's kind of a rare occurrence where you're told what the point of the parable is at the beginning of it. Before we even jump into it, Luke tells us at the very beginning in verse 1, he says, Jesus told them this parable. Why? So they would pray always and not give up. So you pray always and not give up. And so that's really great and encouraging to us because, like I said, the discipline of prayer, remaining consistent in it and growing in it and not giving up on it is one of the more difficult ones for us, I believe. And so what we have here in this parable is, well, number one, an encouragement, right? Because Luke says, an encouragement to pray always and not give up. So number one, we have an encouragement directly from Jesus. We have an encouragement for us in Scripture that no matter how difficult it is to not give up, to continue on to persevere in prayer. But just another encouraging point for you. Do you ever feel discouraged that prayer is so difficult for you? Or that you seem to be so inconsistent or, 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 or lacking or weak or whatnot in prayer? Understand this. Jesus is not surprised by that in you. Jesus is not surprised by that weakness in you uh, and, and, and caught off guard now and wondering, oh, should I keep them as my disciple, Right? He's not thinking that whenever you're weak in prayer. He knows that. That's what this parable shows us. 
he knows that it will be difficult for us to, to persevere, to maintain, to, to keep going in prayer. And so that's why he gave you this parable of encouragement. And so this short parable is meant to be an instruction to us, to teach us a little bit about prayer, uh, but then most importantly, like I said also, to be an encouragement for us. And so we're going to look at a couple of things today. There's two characters in the story. We're going to look at each one of them. We're going to look at the unjust judge first. We're going to look at the unjust judge in this story. And then we're going to look at that widow, that persistent widow who is coming before him, pleading her case. And then lastly, I'm going to have some applications for us. So, so a big group of applications there at the end. So let's begin by looking at the judge. One of the great features, you know, if, are any of you guys Western fans? Any, any fans of, you know, good Western movies in here? One of the great features of the, of the Westerns movie is the, uh, is the character of the anti-hero, right? You know what an anti-hero is? The anti-hero is that character, one who doesn't, uh, who in his own character doesn't display all of the typical qualities that we would expect in a hero, right? Maybe not necessarily the most honest person, maybe not necessarily the most generous person or the most kind person or most trustworthy, whatever else it might be. And anti-heroes can play a couple of different roles. Sometimes you have an anti-hero. You know, he's, he's the main character of the story. He's a bad guy, but all of his bad characteristics highlight the goodness in someone else. And, and like in the Western movies, what you often see is this, this, this rough rider coming into town, right? And he's a dangerous man. He's maybe not always been the most trustworthy. Maybe he's an outlaw. He's got all these bad qualities about him, but then throughout the course of the movie, by the end of it, though he's still, you know, kind of a sketchy character, he, he rescues the town from someone, from a true villain or, or, or evil person or threat, whatever it, was, it, it might be, right? The, the anti-hero. And what Jesus does in this story is present us the story of an anti-hero as well. That's who we see, that type of character that we have in the unjust judge in this story. He's an anti-hero. He's someone who... He doesn't have good character qualities, but at the end of the story, and not necessarily for the right reasons either, he does the right thing, okay? But it's through the, the bad character of this judge that we see in the story here that we learn a good lesson about God. So I'm going to show that to you. But this judge, he's a bad guy. He has an unscrupulous character. Jesus says that he fears neither God nor man. What that means is, is he is someone who doesn't honor the two great commandments, what are the two greatest commandments? Love God, and then what? We say it every week, love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two great commandments. Those are, love God and love your neighbor is the summary of the law and prophets, right? It's the summary of the Ten Commandments. Love God, that's the first two commandments. Love your neighbor, that's all the other commandments after the first two. And so when Jesus says that this is a man who doesn't fear God nor respect people, that's kind of a way of saying he doesn't love God and he doesn't love people. He, he has a bad character. He's not following God uh, at all in any way. Uh, he's a self-serving man. Though he is obviously the local magistrate of a town, he's a judge, um, he's, he has no interest in actually executing justice or administering justice in the town, um, but he's in that position seemingly for just some kind of self-serving purposes because we have this widow who's coming to him, and if he were a good judge, right, he would hear her case, and he would administer justice as the law requires. But instead, he just ignores it. Because what does he have to gain from a widow, right? An unjust judge will listen to the cases and administer justice for those who can pay back, right? He'll hear the cases where he can get a kickback on it, right? It's some, whenever there's something in it for him. 
But for this widow, who would have been powerless, most likely destitute and poor, uh, she, was, she was being oppressed by an adversary, there's nothing in it for him. So he's not listening to her case. So we have this unjust judge. He's self-serving. He has an unscrupulous character. He does not follow the law. But what Jesus is doing is he is using this anti-hero type. He is using this character to contrast something to teach us about the character of God. So the negative quality, the, the, the bad qualities in this judge are meant to be a contrast to highlight the goodness of God. And so here's the first point that I want us to see, that God is eager and willing to answer our prayers for justice. God is eager and willing to answer our prayers for justice. Jesus is using the worst in this judge to highlight the best in God. And so just as this judge was unwilling, was un, didn't want to listen to the widow, was putting her off, had, had no concern for proper justice, those bad qualities are meant to contrast and, and to really highlight how God is, is so much better. He is the opposite. How he is, uh, unlike this judge who is unwilling to listen, God is eager to listen to our prayers. Unlike this judge who had no concern for justice, uh, God has a deep and true concern for justice. Uh, you know, while this judge was, was, was unscrupulous, while he did not follow the law, he was unrighteous. God is, is righteous. He is holy, right? And he, uh, and he has a, a character of integrity, we might say, if we were, you know, to describe it in terms of other terms. Because we might look and say, you know, it's kind of weird to compare God to this bad person, to, to this bad character here in this parable. It only doesn't make sense if we don't understand what Jesus is doing. Like I said, he's using contrast to highlight. He's saying he's using a lesser to a greater argument. This was something that, uh, that was common in Jewish teaching. He's using a lesser to a greater argument. So the lesser being the judge. He's, so he's saying, look, if even this guy, if even this sketchy character, because of the persistence of the widow, finally relents and answers her prayers. So what he's saying is, is how much more then? You see, the lesser to the greater. How much more then God, who is, is the opposite in all these qualities, who is the perfect contrast in all these qualities, how much more is he going to be eager and willing and ready to hear and answer your prayers? That's what Jesus is doing here. I want to pull out a couple of things. Uh, things from this first point about God being eager and willing to answer our prayers for justice. The first thing is this. I want to point out the, uh, the context or the, uh, the content, the content of the prayers. So we might say like, well, what type of prayers is God eager and willing to answer here? So let's talk about what is the content of the prayers that Jesus is talking about? If we take this passage seriously in its context, then what we need to note is, is that the type of prayers that Jesus is talking about is prayers for justice, or what we might say even more accurately, is prayers for the kingdom. Because in context here in Luke, especially later today, you can go back and read in Luke chapter 17. What is happening before this in, in Luke chapter 17 is there is a discussion over the kingdom. There's a discussion over the kingdom, and specifically there are questions being put forward to Jesus about when the kingdom will arrive. When will the kingdom arrive, Jesus? When will the kingdom fully be established? When is it going to come? When are we finally going to be given freedom? When are we, like this widow, finally going to be given uh, uh, relief and, uh, and, and liberation from our adversaries? 
right? We as Christians, we might pray very similar prayers praying for the kingdom in terms of, you know, when will the kingdom finally come in its fullness? We get to experience it in a taste and in a preview now because of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us and because of the blessing of church community. But when will Christ return? As he says here, when will the Son of Man return? When will he return and fully consummate his kingdom? When will we get to experience that marriage supper of the Lamb? When will we get to experience all of his enemies being placed underneath his feet, right? Sin, death, and the devil being finally defeated, all tears being wiped away, as it talks about in Revelation, and us experiencing, you know, bliss for the rest of eternity in the presence of our Father, right? When will that day come? It was that type of discussion that they were having right before this parable. And so it's based off that discussion about when will the kingdom come that it says, now he told them this parable about praying and not giving up. And in the parable, it's a parable about the woman asking for justice. And so in their mind, well, what is the justice that we pray for as, the, uh, as a church? You know, we look at different areas and specific circumstances in life and say, well, there's an injustice here, there's an injustice there. But the greatest justice that we ought to be praying for is the arrival of the kingdom. Whenever God sets right his world, right? Whenever he finally and fully punishes, condemns, and does away with evil, with sin, and he restores the world to the way that it ought to be, that is the greatest act. That is the greatest moment of justice that we should be looking forward to. In, in every other instance in it, or, or example of justice that we might point to in our world today, whether it's something that you experience or whether it's something that we point to in our culture or society, something you look at in history and say, that was a great moment of justice. These are just, these are just drops in the bucket compared to what the moment of justice will be whenever the Son of Man returns and God fully, completely, and eternally establishes his kingdom. Whenever he fully sets everything right, which is what justice means. So that's the content of the prayers that Jesus is talking about here. The prayers that we pray for justice, for the kingdom, for the kingdom being spread, for Christ's return, for, for strength and perseverance in the church to continue against our adversaries until that day that he returns. These are the prayers that we are talking about in this parable. But the second thing that I want to highlight in this first point is the kind of God who hears. So he looks at the content of the prayers, but I want to look at, as well, the kind or the character of the God who hears. Like I said before, Jesus is using the worst in the judge to highlight the best in God. Just consider all the different ways that this judge and God are being contrasted here to show us the kind of God who hears our prayers. You know, no relationship existed between the woman and the judge in this passage. There's no relationship there. She was a complete stranger to him. But God, on the other hand, listens to his chosen people. On the other hand, whenever we go before God, we do not go before him as strangers. We don't go before him even as just uh, citizens living in his, in his kingdom with no relationship to him. We go before him as his children. So whereas there was no relationship between the judge and the widow, we go before God as his children. We go before God as a people who are the objects of his love and affection. He loves his people, and he is eager to do justice for them. Consider how the judge acted on the woman's behalf for the wrong reasons. Like I said, he's a self-serving judge. He has no interest in hearing her case until finally he says, you know, I, I, he's exasperated 
by her constant pleading and asking. And so whether it's because he's just worn out by her asking or whether it's because he's starting to worry about his reputation, although that doesn't seem as likely, he's just sick of hearing her. So he says, fine, okay, I'll give you, I'll hear your case, I'll give you justice, give you freedom from your adversary, right? So while the judge acted on the woman's behalf for the wrong reasons, he acted on her behalf out of selfish reasons, God, on the other hand, uh, acts on behalf of his people out of love. Does God need anything from us? The scripture answers no. He is self-sufficient. He is all-sovereign. He owns all things. All glory is already his, right? What does he need from us, or what does he gain from us whenever he hears our prayers? I'll tell you one thing he gains. The pleasure of answering his children's prayers. If If any of you guys in here are parents, you know that there is great pleasure whenever you get to give your children something good, right? That it's, a, it's a joy and a pleasure, something you get to do that just is incomparable to anything else. And you know what that is? That's an act of love. Because, you know, they don't really give you anything that you, that you, that you need, right? Whenever my son helps me make coffee in the morning, I don't really need his help, you know, that, that kind of thing. You know, they're not really providing that much. They're not really raising the, 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 the income in our house. So why do you give them the things that they, that they desire? Because you love them. God acts on behalf of his people out of a selfless love for them, for you. The judge, once again, he acted selfishly, but God acts selflessly. Especially when we consider that the blessings that we receive from God are paid for at his own expense. Whenever you have to bless someone, whether it is your children, or whether it is a family member, a friend, or even a stranger, whenever you have to bless them, it usually requires some kind of sacrifice on your part, doesn't it? If you're going to help a stranger, they need, they need money for food. It's going to take a sacrifice from you to, to give them that cash, or if you're going to bless someone else, whatever. It, it, it maybe sometimes it takes a sacrifice of time to go and help somebody with, with a project with they, that they need or whatever else. Well, the same thing is true with God. Whenever he answers our prayers and whenever he helps us, it requires a sacrifice on his behalf. But his sacrifice, since his riches and since his power and since his time are infinite, his sacrifice is not so much financially or in terms of time or in terms of energy or whatever else, his sacrifice is different. Because think, we're willing to sacrifice money, time, or whatever else for our child or for one of our friends or for one of your family members. But what about for an enemy? What about for someone who, who has uh, actively worked against you? What about somebody who has who has hated you, who has uh, rebelled against you. Are you willing to sacrifice for that person? Most often we would say, well, no. But if God is going to answer our prayers, what kind of sacrifice is required on his part? The sacrifice that comes from blessing those who were rebels, who were enemies to you, blessing sinners, right? Us people who, who rebel against God by breaking his law, us who rebel against God by worshiping idols, right, living for, for things or for uh, ideas or for people or for pleasures and, you know, uh, above and beyond uh, living for God, right, for we people who are sinners, 
who, who are, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, who are the children of wrath, who walk in darkness, who are opposed to God in all of our ways, right? For us, what does God have to sacrifice in order to bless us? Because what we deserve is not his blessing, but what we deserve is his wrath. The sacrifice required from God to bless sinners was his son. It was his son going to the cross, paying the penalty that we deserved, enduring the suffering that should have been ours for breaking God's law, receiving the just condemnation that should have been mine for uh, rebelling against God and idolatry. I have not deserved one bit, one ounce of God's favor, of God's blessing in my life. And so every bit that I have received and every bit that you have received has been the result of his grace. Grace bought for you because Jesus Christ took your place on the cross. So that what should have been your wrath, so that what should have been your death was instead swallowed up in himself. So that the wrath that should have been yours and the death that should have been yours, the condemnation that should have been yours, was placed in Jesus' grave. And by Jesus placing it in his own grave, he purchased grace. He purchased forgiveness. He purchased mercy and favor so that whenever us sinners, so that whenever us who are weak and fragile and inconsistent in prayer, so that whenever we idolaters and rebels go before God in Christ, he can lavishly pour out his blessings upon us. He can pour out his grace upon us. He he is such a God who is infinite in mercy that despite our, our undeservedness and how we have not merited his grace, he has still sent his son and still despite the sacrifice that he had to go through in sending his son and his son giving up his life, he does not then give blessings or grace un- begrudgingly, right? Have you ever done something that required a great sacrifice from you? And then it was kind of a, but you did it begrudgingly. It wasn't all that great. Or maybe that person comes back to you asking for something again. You think to yourself, my Lord, when will this ever quit? But that attitude never crosses God's mind. Even after sending his son, wherever you come before him in your prayers, he is joyful and he is eager and he is ready and willing to pour out his grace and his blessings upon you. You see, so from the unjust judge, from that, from that bad man, we learn about the greatness of the God that we pray to. Let's look at the widow. The widow was a powerless member of society. Uh, particularly back, you know, widows are certainly in, in, in fragile, weak positions today. But especially so back then. If you were a widow, then that was a, that was a very fragile, uh, very vulnerable place to be in in society. What made it even worse is if you were a a widow living beneath the rule of an unjust or a bad magistrate like this one was. Because we can assume that the story Jesus was talking about here was, you know, within the story, it was set in Israel, right? And because, or so, in the Old Testament law and in, according to Jewish law during the time, there were specific ordinances in place for the protection of widows and for the protection of the most powerless members of society. And so this judge, if he were a good judge, right, he should have been listening to this widow's case, hearing her case, and then giving justice for her, right? 
But what, so what makes her fragile, vulnerable position even worse is that she is living with this bad local magistrate. And so this powerless person, this powerless woman, turns to what is her only recourse, and that's perseverance. She turns and she utilizes, she takes responsibility for the only power, the only tool that she's got in her, po- in her pocket, and that is perseverance. She doesn't have a lawyer. She can't pay a lawyer to go before the judge. She doesn't have money to bribe the judge. She doesn't have anyone else who can give her justice. So all she can do is keep going before him and keep going before him, crying out her case, pleading her case, going again and again and again, persevering. And so here's what we learn from her, the second major point for today. We ought to continually persevere in prayer for justice. We ought to continually persevere in prayer for justice. Let's ask a couple of questions based off of that. Whenever I say we, who am I talking about? The first question, who does God answer? Because as I said before, God, he's, he's eager and ready. He's willing. He, he wants to answer your prayers. And, and Jesus is speaking to his disciples here. Who does God answer? According to Jesus, he says in verse 6, he says, listen to what, uh, listen to what the, uh, the Lord, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? So who is it talking about here specifically that God is eager and ready and willing to answer their prayers? According to Jesus, it is this group called the elect. Who is that? That is Jesus' disciples. That is his church. That is his people who are following him in repentance and obedience, right? That, that is Christians who are in relationship with God. That is the people that it is talking about here. That term elect being applied to Christians or disciples uh, is, a, is a nuance of the term which highlights God's unconditional choosing of his people. You see, because what scripture teaches us from beginning to end is that God in time before history looked at you and chose to set his love upon you before you had done anything right or wrong. In fact, knowing the wrong that you would do, knowing your rebellion, knowing your, your proclivity for law-breaking and idolatry, regardless of these things, Scripture tells us that God foresaw you and chose to love you. If you are a Christian, that is true of you. You might say, how do I know that God has loved me from, from eternity past? Well, do you follow him? Do you believe him? Right? Has he, has he worked, uh, has his grace broken into your life to r- awaken your heart and bring you into relationship with himself? Right? Do you desire to be in relationship with him and to love him and to know him more? He has loved you from time eternity past. This is the same thing that he told Israel whenever he was giving them the law. He said, I chose you, Israel. He said, I chose you out of all the nations of the earth. I chose you out of all the peoples of the earth. Why? He said, it's not because you are greater. It's not because you are smarter. It's not because you were morally better. It's not because you had anything that you could give me. It is because I chose to love you. And the same thing is true of you, Christian, if you are in relationship with God. God has chosen to set his love upon you for no other reason. Not because he saw what you could give him. Not because he saw what you could do for him in ministry 
or for how well you could clean up your life after you accepted the gospel. He loves you because he chose to love you. Now you think to yourself, is that good news or bad news? That God, according to Jesus here, is eager to answer those prayers of justice for the elect. Is that good news or bad news? Well, let me ask you this. Would you prefer that the conditionality for God answering your prayers or not is based upon your fickle, inconsistent performance, your devotion that seems to go up and down, your love that, can, that grows warm and then grows cold? Would you rather the conditionality for God to hear and answer your prayers be based on your performance and what you can give him? Or rather, would you rather it be based upon his infinite, eternal love that was set upon you from before the foundation of the world? I know what my answer is. I know that the times in my life where I have begun to doubt and I've begun to question and I've begun to wonder, you know, could God still really want to hear my prayers after, uh, after this or after I've been so inconsistent, after I've been rebelling against him or, you know, after I've had such an idolatrous attitude or after I've been so bitter or whatever else it might be? You know, or, or could he really still love me after I've been acting like such a wretch, like such a beast lately? And in those times of the darkest doubt that I've had, do you know what truth it was that, that pulled me back in? That, uh, do you know what the sweet whisper from Scripture was that, uh, that, that pulled me back into God's loving, healing presence was? I've loved you from before the foundation of the world. So I ask you again, Christian, what do you want the conditionality of God's Answer, hearing and answer your prayers to be based upon your performance or his love, his infinite steadfast love that has been put on you by no work and by no earning and by no decision of your own because, just because he chose to. But what kind of prayers does God hear and answer? According to this parable, once again, it is those prayers which are being prayed always. It is those prayers which, as Jesus says in here, whenever the elect are crying out to him, day and night. Day and night, always. These are the kind of prayers that we are to be praying for the kingdom, a, prayer, a continual prayer. So that doesn't mean that you're spending 24-7 like a monk down on your knees, you know, in a, in, a, in a closet praying. But what this means is that you live a lifestyle of prayer. You live a lifestyle where you, you seek to be uh, aware of God's presence in every moment of your life and through everything that you do and to, and to just continue sending prayers to him as you go throughout your day. So you wake up in the morning, you have your devotion time of, of focused, intense prayer before the Lord. And then you go about making your breakfast. And as you think about something that, that, that and, you know, a thought comes into your mind as you're fixing your coffee or breakfast about a meeting that you have that day. And so you say, Lord, be with me during that meeting, right? And then you move on. And then, and then something else comes through. You're, you're driving to work and you're thinking about a person. Maybe one of your family members that you've been worried about. And so you pray, Lord, be with this, you know, be with them, be with so-and-so. Maybe sometimes you don't even know what to pray. You don't even know what to say to him. And so you, you, you just say, Lord, as you will and as you do, help me, right? Give, give me strength, right? A, a life of continual prayer. 
where we have those times of focused, intense, more, more drawn-out prayers, but then, but then to continue, continually remain in that attitude throughout your day, bringing your awareness to the fact that God is with you, that he's present with you in every moment at the office and in every conversation that you have and, and in your vehicle and at the, and at the gym and at the, at the park and wherever else. These are the kind of prayers that Jesus is talking about here. But why? Does God need us to be praying that much? Right? Does God need our prayers? Is that why we're told that these, this is how we ought to be praying? No, that's not why. We are not told to be praying always, to be praying day and night, and to continually persevere because God needs those prayers. Because, you know, he's got like a, we watched, we watched Monsters University yesterday. You know how the monsters would get the children to scream, and if they screamed enough, it would fill up those bottles? You know what I'm talking about? It, God doesn't have one of those bottles there, and he's waiting for the church's prayers to fill up that bottle, and then he'll answer it, right? That's not how it works. He doesn't need those prayers. You do. We do. He tells us to be continually praying always, day and night to be praying, because we need that. It is a gift from God to us to stay in connection with him, right? Once again, just highlighting the love of God. How, how great is the love of our God that he desires the constant pestering of his children? Even in my best moods and moments with my kids, there's times whenever I, I want to say, could you just be quiet? Right? I heard you. Okay? I heard you. Right? But that's not, that's not how our God operates. That's not the kind of father he is. He wants that continual prayer. But you know why? It's a blessing. It's a blessing from him to us. It is an invitation from him to us to always remain in awareness of his presence. Do you know what, what, it, what a life-changing experience it is to, to become the kind of person who can go throughout their day with just that constant awareness in your mind? that God is with me. God is with me. I'm in his presence right now. You know, this situation I'm in, is, it's not outside of his will. It's not outside of his presence. I'm fully with him right now, just as I am whenever I'm on my knees in prayer. When I'm at church, he's with me right here right now. He's with me in this conversation, this random encounter that I had at the grocery store. He's, he's present in this conversation. You know what a game changer that is in your life? That's a blessing from God to us. That's something that we need. So, like I said, I was going to save my, my applications for the end. So let me just go through some of these applications. The first one is this. Whenever you're feeling tempted to quit in prayer, whenever you're feeling tempted to give up, what is going to be the motivation to get you to continue on, to make you, to make you pray again, right? The motivation, I think, according to this parable, is the character of God. The character of God is our motivation to pray. Whenever you're feeling weak, whenever you're feeling inconsistent, maybe whenever you're feeling afraid or ashamed because you haven't prayed in a while, right, or because you gave into a temptation that you've been fighting with for years, you gave it into it again, whatever else it might be. But whenever you're tempted to not pray, to not go, go before the Lord, your motivation and what's going to get you there is not going to be, Oh, I just need to do it. <laughs> I just need to. I just need to muster enough, muster up enough willpower. I just need to. Uh, I don't know. Like you're gonna, like you're gonna run. Whenever a, a football team goes running through the banner, right? It's not like you just mustering up the energy. Or I'm gonna go run through that banner into God's presence in prayer. No. It's the character of God. 
So in those moments, whenever you're, you're, you're tempted to quit, you're tempted to ignore, you're tempted to, to just move on rather than to spend that moment in prayer or that devotional time in prayer, whatever it might be, here's what you need to think about. You need to think about that loving Father and what He has sacrificed to have a relationship with you. What He has sacrificed to be able to hear your prayers and to answer them and how even now, while you are afraid and you're holding back, right, and you're, you're acting so foolishly, even now, he's, he's, he's smiling and he's eager and ready. You know, a practice, and I know I've done this with some of you guys in counseling before, but something to think about in those moments. Whenever, in those moments, close your eyes and just imagine if you can see God's face. What does it look like? So often, whenever I do this with people, they say, he's frowning, or he looks disappointed, or he looks ashamed. But you know what scripture says? There is no condemnation, so he's not frowning. He's not ashamed. Do you know what scripture says? It says that he rejoices over you, that his steadfast love is set upon you, his elect, right? So his face, he's smiling. So just remember that next time. Remember God's smiling face waiting for you to go before him. So it's the character of God that should be your motivation to pray. The second thing is this, is that there are answers to prayer and blessings that God is waiting for you to ask for. Things that he wants to give you. Right now, like I said, if we, the, in the most strict interpretation of this parable, it is talking about prayers for the kingdom. But I think as a general application too, we can say that even if it's not a, a strict prayer for the kingdom, you know, because we have all kinds of concerns and thoughts and, and dreams maybe that, that we bring before God that we pray for, and it's not bad to pray for those things, Right? Now, now, James does warn us. He says, sometimes you ask and you do not have because you do not ask. He says, but other times it's because you ask and you're planning to use the blessings selfishly, okay? So, so, look, you can bring any concern before God. Check your motive whenever you do, all right? You can bring anything before him. And just let me tell you guys, I believe, and I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel, okay? It's not guaranteed. But because he's a good father, and I know the good fathers love to bless their children. There are blessings, there are opportunities, there, there's doors that he wants to open. There's greater experiences of his presence, things that he has for you, that he wants for you, but he's waiting for you to ask for them. Theologians call this the conditional will of God. Things that he wills, that he wants to happen, but there's an if before it, right? So if Aaron prays, I've got this for him and his family, right? If Redeemer prays, I've got this open door for them, right? Or this opportunity for them. We see this in Scripture. Like I said in James, James says, sometimes there's blessings God has for you that you don't have because you're not asking. Jesus says something very similar in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, In Matthew chapter 6, it's either in 6 or 7, I can't remember what part of the Sermon on the Mount, but Jesus says to them, right, you don't have because you're not asking. You're not knocking at the door, right? Knock at the door and it'll be open, right? Pray, ask God. What's the worst he can do? Say no? Okay. <laughs> or not yet? Okay. He says, but ask him. Ask. Another one, in our efforts to see the kingdom come, we cannot afford to neglect prayer. What I mean by that is this. So often, whenever we want to see the kingdom come by by the gospel being spread, souls being saved, salvations, baptisms, you know, these kinds of things, church growth. 
we start thinking, well, what kind of programs do we need to start? And what kind of outreaches should we do? What kind of social media campaigns should we have? And we neglect prayer. Maybe there are other kingdom-type prayers that we have in our life that aren't you know, necessarily related to the gospel, but, but it's things of you know, ways that you want to see the kingdom grow in, in healing for your family, right? Justice in our world. And we start going immediately to, like, the things that we can do with our hands. We start going immediately to, like, uh, just trying to manipulate human powers in order to see that kingdom movement happen. Instead of doing the main thing that we ought to be doing, which is prayer, right? The, the fuel that runs the engine of kingdom growth in our world is not, it's not our abilities and not our wisdom and not our programs. It is prayer before God. There's, there's a pastor in Scotland named E.M. Bounds, and he said, the church does not need better programs and needs better praying men. So, in our efforts to see the kingdom come, do not, we cannot neglect prayer. Um, let's end with this one. Even when you're tempted to neglect prayer, know that these are wonderful moments to go before God. Very often, this is something that, there, there's this little book by C.S. Lewis called Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. And he talks in there about, you know, how, how discouraging it can be that, that even after years of walking with God and, and of being a disciple, it's still so easy for us to be inconsistent and, to, and for it to be difficult for us to pray. And, and Lewis writes in, in one of his letters about this, and he says, you know what, but I, he said, you know what I've learned over the years and, and, and what I think, he said, I think that those Far from it being an excuse for us to not pray, he said those can be some of the greatest opportunities for us to go and pray. Because whenever you go before the Lord, you know, there's times where it's easy to pray because life is great. Life is great. It's smooth sailing. You've got, you got blessings all around you. And so it's easy to, to pray prayers of gratitude and thanksgiving before God. But, you know, but then there's times in your life where, where it's difficult. Maybe it's difficult circumstances, or maybe you're just going through a difficult season of spiritual dryness, and so it's hard for you to pray. In those moments, whenever you go before God in prayer, based upon, not because of the blessings that you're getting, because of the good feelings that you're having, but you're going before God in something deeper than good feelings. This is what Lewis was talking about. Whenever you go to God based off of something that is deeper than just our good feelings, whenever you go to God through faith that is deep down, faith in the goodness of his character and in obedience to his command that we continue to pray give, and, and not give up, whenever you go to God in those moments, then those might be some of the sweetest, most precious, greatest opportunities that you have to go before him in prayer, where you really grow in your sanctification, where you really grow in your Christ-likeness, where you, you may not know, but he has a, a wonderful experience of his presence waiting for you in that moment. I know this has been true of my life, where there's been many times where I've gone before God in prayer, though I didn't feel like it, and you know what? I didn't get a great experience out of it, but I didn't regret that time. And I knew that, you know what? That was one more step towards being more like Jesus. There's been other times where I didn't feel like it, and I went into prayer, and God had a wonderful experience of his presence waiting for me that, that filled my soul. That was like a healing ointment on that spiritual dryness that I had. So, whenever you're tempted not to, don't neglect that prayer. 
but go to him, understanding that that might be the greatest, some of the greatest opportunities that you have to spend time with your father. Let's pray. Lord, in our dreams and in our fears, uh, in all our hopes and efforts and plans and schemes, Father, whether they be in the church and to advance the gospel, whether they be in our homes or businesses, in our careers as students or professionals, Father, let the driving force behind it all be a motivation to see your glory spread, a confidence in your loving and gracious character, and then a movement and action to prayer. Lord, before we try to work in our own power and before we try to devise plans and programs, Father, not that we would be lazy and not that we would neglect the work that you call us to do, Father, but let the work be preceded with, let the work be saturated with and just bathed in prayer to you. Lord, because we know based off your word that you are a God eager and willing to answer those kingdom prayers. Lord, the kingdom prayers for salvation for our neighbors, our friends and family that we are praying for, that we, that we know need their sins forgiven, that need redemption, that need to know you. Lord, whether it's those kingdom-centered prayers of, of our homes and our families being centered and ordered around your justice around what, what you say is right and how, and how you say a husband and a wife and children and parents are supposed to interact together in a way that reflects you. Lord, whenever we seek to, to build and order our businesses and careers in a way that reflects and spreads the kingdom, Father, would, the, would all these things be just soaked in prayer? Lord, will we be a praying church? Would it be a church that doesn't depend on programs and doesn't depend on the cleverness of what we can scheme up, but Father, that we instead depend on you moving through the devoted prayers of mighty men and women of prayer. Lord, we bring all these things to you this morning, asking that your Holy Spirit would would move through this prayer and our prayers to make them effective, and that your Holy Spirit would fill us with the motivation, the strength uh, to continue persevering. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.